My name is Rachel Hollis and I present Nursing Matters, the podcast from the Royal College of Nursing. The nursing profession is often poorly represented or silent in the news. What impact does that have on policy and on practice? And how can we get a real picture of nursing today and what the profession does in front of the public? This week, we talked to the Independence Health Correspondent, Sean Linton, about some of the stuff that matters to nursing and about how we can change the image of nursing in the news. That's Nursing Matters from the Royal College of Nursing, for everyone who knows or cares about nursing and healthcare. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters with me, Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the Royal College of Nursing's Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse and I live in North Yorkshire. Welcome back to my co-host for today and my fellow PNC committee member, Professor Alison Leary. Hello, Alison. How are you this week? Hi, Rachel. Uh, Really good. Lots of interesting things in the news and uh, currently just reading about Matt Hancock and his um, testimony that he's giving to the committee. As you say, there's just so much stuff going on today, isn't there? It's going to be hard to choose what to focus on. But I think one of the big developments um, from, I think, a couple of days ago now was the Health and Social Care Committee report on NHS and social care staff burnout, um, and that that's really reached crisis levels during the, the pandemic. The report makes a really clear link between staff burnout and workforce pressures, and the pandemic has worsened what was an existing pressure of overworking and understaffing. As you know, the RCN is reporting over 50,000 nursing vacancies in the UK before the onset of COVID. Is the problem more acute in some places? You're, you're in London. Is it, is it more acute there? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the recent poll showed about 8,500 vacancies in London, which, which is pretty high. Um, Organisations like Capital Nurse have done a lot of studies on the cost of living in London as well. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a really acute issue in London and it is in a, a lot of the big cities and throughout the country. And of course, existing vacancies don't take into account those who may leave the profession. What do we know about the intention of nurses um, who are thinking about leaving the profession? From what I can tell, the intention to leave is is the highest it's ever been. So there have been quite a lot of polls. The RCN have done some uh, surveys and they did a survey at the start of the pandemic. Certainly as academics, we've been tracking intention to leave and it's much higher than it would normally be. We'd, we'd usually track around 15 to 20% and it's it's been consistently around 60%. So I think once the sort of the acute part of the pandemic is over and the business as usual starts with the added workload of COVID, we're going to see quite an exodus, I fear. So thinking about um, the topic of today's podcast, we know that nurses are often misrepresented or silent in, in the media. And we've talked on a couple of previous episodes about how we can get a more accurate portrayal out there of the, the reality of nursing. So our guest today is Sean Linton, health correspondent for The Independent. He was one of the team who broke the story of the Mid-Staffordshire NHS care scandal. And he's our first podcast guest, I think, who's, who's not a nurse, but he is, I think you would perhaps call him a critical friend of nursing in the media. So hello, Sean, and welcome to Nursing Matters. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Alison. It's uh, great to be here. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for finding the time at what I know is a really, must be a really busy time for 
health correspondence. There's so much going on at the moment. Oh, well, you know, just a few things, nothing too busy. I've uh, I've been uh, twiddling my thumbs for months now. <laughs> no, nothing major. <laughs> Sean, we're going to come on to talk about your work on at the time of the Midstaff's case later in, in the podcast. But but first of all, what did you, you make of the Select Committee report on staff burnout, especially as it affects nursing? I had several thoughts, to be honest. And one, of course, was just, in a sense, sheer frustration that we have another report saying things that it, I, I don't think it was of any surprise to anyone that's been following the workforce issues in the NHS for the last few years. It, it certainly didn't bring up anything new in one sense. I think where we were quite rightly surprised and shocked was it just around the sort of the emergency aspect of it now in the wake of covid you know a lot of these issues have been deep running in the health service for for years and they've been getting steadily worse and i think where the committee was correct in saying that it is now a a crisis an emergency and i think that was an important moment for the health committee to say that i know i've been a health journalist now for over a decade and i know if we went back through history to see to other health committee reports we'd find similar warnings uh, and similar concerns so i think for me what i was left with was a frustration that we'd got to this stage and and i i did as usual go on a twitter rant about the fact that a lot of this comes from the persistent ignorance of some in the NHS and in government over workforce issues and short staffing. And, you know, I said on on Twitter that if you're a nurse working in a short staffed ward, risking your pin every day, worried about making mistakes and constantly cutting corners so that you're not able to deliver the care that, you know, you trained to many years to do, then naturally you're going to start burning out, aren't you? So I think burnout is a symptom uh, of, of much deeper problems and and they are things that you know frankly the nhs nhs england and the government have actively brought about you know they've undermined nursing for a long time uh, and you know i'm sure we'll come on to all of this but th- there have been long-standing problems that have just contributed to where we are today and that's that's really what just frustrates me and made me rage a little bit when the report came out and and i think we'd share that that real sense of frustration as you say this isn't new but the pandemic has really brought it to a point where it's so so clear and i think recognizing it as a absolutely as an an emergency yeah absolutely i mean i think the pandemic clearly has has pushed us into a new territory and and i think you know i've spoken to nurses over the last 15 months some of whom have been in tears on the phone to me about what's been going on 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 the wards there and I, I I'm not a nurse I'm not a clinician I cannot imagine what it's been like I have I have been on an intensive care ward I've seen for myself the patients fighting for their lives and wearing full PPE and and you know I was there for just one day and it's uh, stayed with me ever since and so I can't imagine for the staff who have been dealing with this uh, day in day out the effect of that is is going to be tremendous and we know the mental health consequences of of all of this regardless of burnout so it is a real crisis that we've got to get a grip of but i think it, this won't be fixed quickly and that's what worries me this won't you, as any anybody listening will know you can't make nurses overnight um and i think that's going to be a real problem we're, we're stuck in this situation now because of the inaction 
for many years, we're stuck in this now for quite some time. You know, there's no short-term fix to this, is there? And it's not a question of, you know, well-being interventions to manage burnout. It's actually tackling that root cause, which is down at that workforce crisis. Yeah, I think I suppose that one of the problems is that the NHS loves a quick fix, and and I'm, you know, we may well discuss. We've we've reported this week around the the replacement of qualified registered nurses with non nurses in some roles in the NHS, and and I think those kinds of quick fixes could have some very serious consequences for for patients and for nursing. So I, I do worry about the quick fix uh, temptations uh, for some in the NHS hierarchy. One of the things that Sean and I have talked about in the past is the economic case for nursing. Um, we talked about a patient safety congress a couple of years ago. And since then, there have actually been a few economic studies about the economic benefits to the country and to patient care of registered nurses. But the evidence doesn't seem to stick. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that, Sean, because we've got the evidence, but uh, like we have the evidence on safe staffing, but nothing seems to stick policy wise. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it's frustrating for me as a health journalist in this role to see the the evidential test for anything that comes for nurse safe staffing and and safety just seems to be far higher than some other interventions that we see rolled out in the NHS. And, you know, it's, it's really fascinating to me that things like personal health budgets and, and other sort of, you know, the reforms of the NHS into integrated care systems, which are going ahead right now, even before the government's legislations come forward. Um, and there's no, there's sort of far less evidence test for those than, than there is for something that's safety rise. And I can understand that to some degree in the sense that we need to be sure before we start making changes that can impact safety. But I can't help but feel that there's there's a, a sort of perception of nursing and a perception of the NHS workforce, certainly in, in the Treasury and maybe in some uh, offices in NHS England, that there'll never be enough, we'll never get the right answer, we will never be able to say this is fixed. So in a sense, there's a kind of learned helplessness there that that why why push further why invest more the much derided 50,000 extra nurses from the government is actually a really interesting move by the government and and that that puts nursing actually front and center on a political platform i think my problem with that is i've never seen any modeling that underpins that number i don't know where it came from other than was it just simply plucked out because it was a round number and and that's what I think, you know, where's the evidence for all of this? We should be guided by these kinds of things and we just don't seem to be. So we we constantly lurch boom and bust and uh, initiative and, and uh, things that come and go uh, and rather than having a considered plan. And, and actually, I think one way of tackling that might well just be the proposal uh, in the health committee's report this week around requiring health education and to publish and, and make public assessments for workforce planning over the next five ten years um, and to to hold them to account to that 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 could actually help to change the debate on this but it does really frustrate me and I, there is the cynic in me suggests there's something more about it that there's just a sort of a perception of nursing a, a sort of view that um, is a bit derogatory towards nursing perhaps that it doesn't quite help hold the the level of interest perhaps um, and respect that it deserves at certain levels In our last episode, we talked about the workforce crisis in the nursing profession. 
at the Professional Nursing Committee, we've been concerned about the practice of recruiting into registered nurse vacancies, those who are not registered nurses. And the RCN has just published a position paper looking at this. Alison, what's in it and why is this such an important issue for us? I think it's important that a Royal College takes a position on this because there are some fairly significant consequences from not having enough registered nurses. And it's become fairly clear that employers, uh, because they can't recruit registered nurses, are filling those posts with other workers. And it might be that that can be a sustainable model but there's no evidence that it is. And we should always apply a precautionary principle, I think, in workforce planning and workforce modelling. And I know that's very unusual in healthcare, unlike other safety critical industries, but we should always prove that things are safe rather than leaving it to the workforce to prove things are dangerous before we institute any sort of major changes. So that was one of the reasons I think it was important for the college to take a position. We've seen from many different inquiries from from Ely in the 1960s, right through Midstaff's Gospel, all of the major inquiries into catastrophes in health and social care, that the absence of registered nurses has fairly dire consequences on patient safety. And so I thought it was quite important that the college made a a very clear statement on that. When we think about other people being recruited into, into roles, what sort of people are we talking about? What are the examples that we've seen? A lot of the examples we've seen are around uh, non-registered nurses, but other registered professionals. So people like nursing associates, which are a relatively new workforce, but a fairly expansive workforce. And we've seen employers take a conscious decision now to fill registered nurse posts with nursing associates um, and also opening roles up to nursing roles up to allied health professionals. If we were smarter I think in terms of developing the workforce we'd be offering people like physiotherapists speech and language therapists occupational therapists opportunities to develop clinically in their own sphere because there is demand for that level of work and particularly I think since COVID you know the the value of therapists is is absolutely you know written in black and white for me I think we should be investing in that workforce rather than trying to divert them into the work of others. Sean, what's your perspective on this? And do you see a difference between sort of multi-professional, multidisciplinary working and and role substitution? I mean, this is where um, I'm going to trick myself up and reveal myself to be an unthinking uh, member of the press. But I think broadly, why are people doing this? Why are NHS trusts advertising these roles and opening them up to nursing associates and and other professions and, and I think and I think there is a difference there between those two the thing that concerns me more is where you've got nursing associates um, effectively being shifted into what were traditional registered nurse roles and and I know this is a sensitive topic and I've I found myself getting quite a, some abuse over the years since the nursing associate role was first created that that somehow saying this is to uh, actually criticise the nursing associates and the nursing associate role itself. And actually, that is not my position at all. In fact, if I had my way, I would lift all healthcare assistants up to nursing associate role. I think that would be a real benefit to patient safety. But my concern is that we're we're not lifting up, we're downgrading. Uh, and we're asking nursing associates to do roles that are perhaps beyond the scope of their original practice was. I think I've seen some job adverts where they were working 
independently assessing and planning care packages and things like this. And my understanding was that they would always be supervised uh, and that the registered nurse would be uh, responsible for this sort of stuff. So I think it's, for me, what concerns me is not maybe the individual examples, but the sort of slow creep of this new role, which let's remember when it was created, the chief nurse and NHS England, health education, and everybody said it should not be used for substitution. But we've seen time and again, examples where registered nurse establishments have been reduced to make and to accommodate nursing associate roles. And we're doing this all because we just don't have enough registered nurses. Uh, And going back to what we've discussed previously, we don't see registered nurses, particularly perhaps with the the value that they should have in our healthcare system and what they they contribute. And that perception, I think, is really dangerous. It's going to be really difficult to unpick these these developments in healthcare over the years to come. But we may well, uh, at some stage, recognise that actually we've created some safety issues because of nursing associates uh, stepping into roles, which, you know, in effect, as I said earlier, they're being exploited. This isn't to denigrate those individuals. They do great work and uh, in their in the right sphere. But if they're being exploited, that's bad for them and it's bad for, for patient care and safety. Absolutely. And I, I think that recognising that scope of practice of the two is is not a lack of respect. It's not devaluing. It's saying that, you know, as you say, a, a nursing associate role is a role that carries out the work delegated by a registered nurse. And there is a place to review skill mix, to um, look at skill mix and see if there are changes that can be made. That that has to be done in a really structured way and and not just because you can't recruit enough registered nurses you put in a nursing associate of course we have to remember that's England only but that they then as you say are working you know potentially beyond their scope of practice puts them at risk and a risk to patient care. I think as well that the the, the issue here is that we're not doing this in a thoughtful way really Uh, it's happening at a local level and maybe not for the right reasons for staffing reasons cost reasons and all of those other factors which shouldn't come into this uh, really and and i think the, the other thing that concerns me is that, that people say well there's nothing to stop those people doing this there's nothing why why do we need a registered nurse in a discharge lounge if all they're doing is x y and z tasks and i think you know, something me and Alison have discussed many times in some of my journalism, but this move towards tasks and having someone uh, who just moves the widget this way or that way or whatever it is, is, is actually devaluing the role of registered nurses. And, you know, similarly in, in with medicine as well, in doctors, this is this is a problem that uh, tasks is, is only one part of what it is to be a clinician. And I'm sure anybody listening will know far better examples than I do, but I have heard countless times of nurses who uh, spot something, they recognize something because of their expertise and their time uh, in the roles, they see a patient deteriorating. I mean, there's the myth of the nurse's intuition, isn't there? But it's not really magic. It's actually just the consequence of of years of experience working in those roles. And if we actually just start thinking about jobs as tasks, I think that's really, really quite dangerous and we'll miss that lack of nursing expertise on our wards, um, really. And that's that, that's really what, what I think concerns me. Yeah, and I think it's a real 
concern and I guess that risk to care and patient safety maybe brings us to the situation going back. Alison's talked about the fact that we've seen many inquiries. Um, You were one of the team who who broke the story of failings in in care and in patient safety at Mid-Staffordshire Hospital and for those who aren't familiar with the story can you just remind us about some of the key findings from from that? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, it's, uh, it's it, this is the reason why I'm a health journalist and I'm an accidental health journalist in that I came across Midstaffs uh, as a local newspaper reporter over a decade ago now, about 12 or 13 years ago, which I can't quite believe. But in effect, the um, cut a long story short, the final public inquiry effectively revealed that there was widespread systemic failing within the hospital across multiple wards. It's uh, It wasn't just one or two wards it was across all sorts of different wards general surgery a and e medicine wards acute medicine uh, cancer etc um this was largely down to a huge lack of uh, nurses which were cut to save 10 million pounds in a single year the trust was had a poor culture uh, culture of bullying the board were inexperienced and not listening and that was just the trust and actually the public inquiry that followed what i think was most important about that was that it put paid to the idea that this was a local failure as the then labor government had argued it was it was and what sir robert francis exposed in the inquiry was that there were systemic failings at at almost every level from uh, the trust to the commissioners the primary care trusts as was and the care quality commission as was and, and other regulators uh, the nmc and all sorts of bodies almost everybody that had a hand in keeping patients safe actually failed and the the reverberations from the francis inquiry have continued uh, throughout um, my career as a health journalist and it's fading slightly into history now as new scandals emerge as ever but i think some of the themes remain uh, very prescient to, today uh, and i think we still have not really implemented many of the recommendations that that came out of the inquiry and and i i do worry that we'll see something uh, similar to that emerge but we haven't yet and i think that's that, that gives me uh, some hope that perhaps uh, things are getting better but it's certainly dominated the conversation in healthcare and safety i, th- I would say for the last um, 10 years and that's been uh, to the benefit of patients but with still so much more to do i don't i don't think the work ever finishes and and you say that that sort of turned you into a an accidental health correspondence what was it that really then took you into a career that you've now got well i think I've said this before that you you can't sit. So part of my job as a journalist was to obviously interview families uh, who'd been harmed and to investigate those cases and then sit through the public inquiry. So I think I sat through most of the 139 days of evidence. And to be blunt, you, you can't sit through that and you can't interview hundreds of families and not be deeply affected by it. And I certainly was. And I was affected in a sense that this, the sense of injustice, the raw kind of failure that this was for so many people and that something had to be done about it. And in effect, I found myself just caring a lot about this story and about this scandal. And I think over time that just became my mission really as a professionally. And so it was natural that as the inquiry announced, the newspaper made me the health correspondent. And from there, I went to the health service journal and became their patient safety correspondent. And and I've pursued that same uh, campaign uh, 
Um, I don't like calling myself a campaigning journalist, actually. I'm just an investigative journalist. Sometimes people confuse the two because they look the same. But Midstaffs has been the star by which I've sort of sailed as a, a health correspondent, which has brought me into much contact with nursing and nursing as a profession. And I think although there was horrendous nursing care at Midstaffs, the absolute worst levels of, of care that I've ever come across from delivered to people by nurses, what Midstaffs did was actually turn me into a huge champion uh, for nursing as a as a safety profession because I can see, I've seen the consequences when we don't have enough nurses and when nurses are bullied and they're not allowed to be the profession uh, that we train them to be and hope they'd be. So actually, it, conversely, as you said at the beginning, I'm, I see myself very much as a critical friend to the NHS and to nursing, but I am a huge advocate for safe staffing and, and professional nurses being on wards because I know what happens when they're not there and or when there's only a few of them and it's uh, it's it's awful and nobody should have to live through those experiences. And so that's the kind of mission that I I follow. Every one of us in nursing's had a, a moment or some probably quite a lot of moments when we've read a news story or seen a report about the profession which outrages us in its unfairness, its inaccuracy or simply in the lack of understanding of our work. The mainstream media, with notable exceptions, often misrepresents nursing. Sometimes we're seen as heroes, as angels. All too often we're still seen as undertaking unskilled women's work and carrying out the instructions of doctors. Now, this isn't just a matter of pride, because I think a lack of understanding of nursing can also lead to a lack of understanding of, of the contribution of nursing to healthcare, and this can lead in turn to, to bad policy decisions. So how can we get a better representation of nursing in the mainstream news media? And Sean, we've talked about the fact that you're a, a critical friend to nursing, but also a, a huge advocate of nursing. Do you think that the pandemic has given the public a better insight into the true nature of nursing today? I think it has. I think people um, do recognise now the value of certainly intensive care and critical care nurses, but I, and I think that that can only be a good thing. I do think, though, that I was a bit disappointed to see uh, during the pandemic some uh, the discussions of pressure on nursing you'd see doctors, um, intensive care mm -hmm. consultants um, speaking about this. I don't want to be dismissive of people like Nikki Credlin from the British Association of Critical Care Nurses, who was absolutely brilliant throughout the pandemic and, you know, said what, what needed to be said often when, when others wouldn't. But she couldn't be everywhere. And I, I, I thought, I do still feel there was a little bit of a lack of nursing voice uh, even at the height of of the pandemic, actually, which was a shame. And I, you know, I've sp I spoke to lots of nurses for my job, and I'm 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 in a lucky position doing the work that I've done over the years. That I do have, I think, uh, anyway. Without um, I'm tempting fate now, but I do think I have the confidence of of some nurses anyway to speak to me, uh, and so I was able to get those perspectives. But I think it was a shame we didn't always see. The critical care nurses front and center of media coverage there was a, there was a lot more medicine than nursing which you know this isn't a competition and we shouldn't see it as that but i would have liked to have seen more frontline nurses on the tv uh, and in the radio than perhaps doctors so um, luke carhill calls this white coat washing and we've seen a lot of it actually over the 
period of the pandemic, in fact, we saw it prior to the pandemic, where the media ask medicine to speak on behalf of nursing. Um, we particularly saw it in the vaccination programme. So most of the vaccination programme was delivered by nurses and particularly general practice nurses who deliver mass vaccination programmes every year. But quite often it was either GPs or other public health doctors or other medics actually speaking about it in the media. So it is something I think that it is a concern because it doesn't give nursing its voice, its agency. And and how do you think nurses can reclaim that voice, Sean? Oh, that's a big question. And I think, I mean, I think you're totally right about white coat washing. In fact, you know, I just think back over the, the months of the pandemic, where, where were the hospital trust chief nurses? Because I didn't see many of them, and I certainly struggled to get some of them to talk to me on the record. Now, I do think some of the blame for that went with, with NHS England, actually, and its vice-like grip on anyone who dared to speak out of turn. And I think possibly that's one reason why doctors managed to get themselves above the parapet is because you know if you're a professor of intensive care medicine at a leading hospital and you're a consultant, etc., there's there's less danger for you personally if you put your head above the parrot and speak on the media uh, and I think that's probably not not true for nurses but it was it was disappointing to me we didn't see a lot of chief nurses on the on the media and, and how to reclaim it I think you know, I can only speak from my perspective but um, I think nurses need to advocate for themselves no they shouldn't expect others to do it I am uh, and I'm sure this is true of most journalists, or would not turn down the opportunity to speak to frontline nurses and chief nurses about issues that they they have concerns about. I, I think any journalist who does that is is going to be on, on a sticky wicket. So I, I think there is an aspect of nurses being confident to approach people like me and to speak to people like me to push their agenda. Uh, and I think, you know, the RCN, I'm afraid to say, has not been great in the past, uh, but I think it's great to see the the professional committees doing a lot more in this space now, and that's really good, and you need that kind of advocacy. So obviously there are professional bodies who can do this as well, but I think nursing must do it for itself uh, and must start speaking not about angels and, and heroes and things like this. And I know so many younger nurses hate that description, and so do I. Um, we need to start talking about nurses as clinicians, as highly skilled technical clinicians who operate, you know, machinery and do things that, frankly, I'm not smart enough to do, and most journalists probably aren't either. Uh, and that's how we need to start changing the perceptions of nursing. I think it's not an easy one to do, but I think every nurse has has a kind of responsibility uh, to do that a bit. Um, and there are risks to talking to people like me, of course, I accept that. But there are journalists out there who you can learn to trust and you can find out if they're the kind of people you can do business with so to speak and I think you know that's why I uh, hopefully have lots of nurse contacts and I think that's the way forward and we've got to get people like me writing about nursing differently and you know I'm really pleased at the independent that we are doing that and we can do that and I think that's going to have to happen everywhere else to, to change the narrative I think. Sean you um, interviewed Alison back in 2018 talking about the future of patient safety now that we've turn the tables a bit where do you see nursing going in the future it's, it's a fascinating experience to be the one answering questions I have to say I'm usually <laughs> the one asking them um, yeah. I think the future of nursing is uncertain in one sense 
I think we're always going to have to have nurses, of course. We're, never, we're not going to get rid of nursing. And there's certainly its position as one of the key healthcare delivery workforce groups is, is going to remain. But I say it's uncertain because there, there are threats on all sides. There are threats from within nursing and the view uh, that some hold of of nursing itself. And, you know, we've talked about the substitution of nursing roles. And then there's a threat from above and the NHS bosses and the Treasury and government who um, see this huge workforce as a, as a cost. Uh, and actually, we can train people to do tasks cheaper. Uh, and I think that that is a real problem uh, for nursing. But I think... I'm a cynic, so I'm naturally pessimistic. I'm going to try and be optimistic because I, I think you know the COVID pandemic has changed things. I think there is some understanding, certainly at NHS Trust level, of the value of nurses and what can happen when you don't have enough nurses in a crisis situation. The 50,000 nurses pledge is, is good. We'll need to see a lot more of that. Uh, NHS England has announced investment in, mid, in midwifery for an extra 1,000 midwives. So I, I'm hoping that we're going to start seeing some investment but as with everything after the pandemic there's a lot of things up in the air at the moment government finances are really quite stretched and you know the issues around pay burnout that we've already discussed people leaving the profession the risks are abound i think for for nursing at the moment so i'm 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 going to stick with uncertain but um you know learned helplessness we should abandon that nurses need to abandon that and 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 push for and advocate for their profession and i think that that gives me hope and i see so many younger nurses who've graduated from university they're they're super educated smart they're all coming through the the pipeline and i think um i i feel hopeful when i have ever have a conversation with these young educated nurses who know about research they quote the research they're they're alive to what's going on in the policy world it's it's exciting to know those people and see those people coming through nursing i think that's that gives me hope for the profession in the longer term no i think there's real hope for the future but i i hope that some of us who are a bit longer in the tooth still have a contribution to make to that um, <laughs> pushing the profession forward alison is there anything you'd add to that in terms of the future of nursing I think, yeah, the potential for nursing is huge, you know, but I think we just need to be clear about what nursing is. It's quite interesting as a mathematician, nobody ever really asked me to justify being a mathematician or or what mathematicians do. But as a nurse, they do it all the time. So I think there's definitely something there about the, the way professions are viewed and perhaps professions that are mostly dominated by women. And in terms of their value, and that is something we need to shift the dial on. We do need to shift the dial on how these professions are viewed and the value of them. We've done so many studies now which show that the the benefits of having registered nurses, you know, policymakers are still not listening. So it may be that there's a a bigger picture here that we really need to address. And I, you know, I think that particularly representation in the media is is one of the ways of doing that. And I think, Sean, you're absolutely right about that. As nurses, we have to take that into our own hands and and make the case and learn to take agency for ourselves and for our profession. Yeah, absolutely. We're almost at the end of the podcast, and that means a question from one of our listeners. Remember, you can ask the panel anything. Just tweet your question to at the RCN with the hashtag Nursing Matters and we'll pick one to ask. This time, a question from Beth in the Midlands. 
We're coming up to the deadline for patients to opt out of NHS digital data sharing. It's the 21st of June. Lots of patients are worried about private data ending up in commercial hands. Are they right to be concerned? Sean, can I ask you for your view on, on that? Yes, good timing, actually. I've just published a story this morning about concerns being raised by more than 120 medical research experts who've signed a joint statement about this. And I was on a briefing yesterday with a number of um, senior uh, researchers and from the UK Biobank and, and others um, talking about this. And I think, so the starting point for this, I'll say, is first of all, NHS data has always been available in some form. And GP data has been available in some form for research. And one of the, uh, Professor Rory Collins, I think, from the UK Biobank said yesterday that it, GP data left their GP practices a long time ago and is held often by commercial companies already contracted to the practices and providing GP services and, and they make it available for research. So in some senses, this has been going on for a long time. I think the there has been some alarmist reports about this this program. Now, I'm, I'm not an expert on data uh, and the specifics of uh, the GP data systems, but I think there are safeguards that NHS Digital has in place. Now, data is pseudo-anonymized, I think they call it. And it, so is there a risk that people can be identified? Maybe. I think anyone who's dealt with NHS data will know this is to, to actually go to the level of identifying someone would be a huge amount of work to actually de-anonymize some of this stuff. I'm not sure the, what the benefit of that would even be commercially to anybody. Uh, so I think there are, there's lots of sort of myths about this. I think as well that could this data be sold to insurance companies and things like that? Well, NHS Digital have said quite clearly, no, it wouldn't be. It will only be for purposes used for healthcare. Um, and they and people will be required to sign legal documents and they will be face uh, sanctions if they're, those, they're found to have broken those rules. So I think overall, I personally don't have a massive concern about the actual sharing of the data. I do have a lot of concern about the way this has been handled. It's been rushed through. It looks, that gives, makes people feel like it's dodgy and it's been poorly handled. The opt-out is confusing and complicated. So I think for me, it's it's the mechanics of the, the, the process, not the actual endpoint. And, and, and just on that endpoint, I think, you know, really important to say that during COVID, we've seen the value of population level health data, ethnicity, for example, there's an re interesting report out this week from the Nuffield Trust showing that we're not recording the ethnicity of some patients. And that's that impacts health research, health data. Mm. So if we're making decisions at a population level about how to deliver health services, about how to improve care how many nurses we might need we need good data and we need good access to data and patient level experiences and outcomes so i think that that's just something to bear in mind there's huge wins and huge benefits to this data being properly used and i think what i would like to see and i think the delay to september is a good uh, is a good move hopefully that means that uh, we can handle some of these issues around the rollout and reassure people a bit more um, Sean's right about the the way that GP data is handled, and and I think that is more of an issue. So you can, I, I actually opted out of the first phase of this. I think it was two thousand seventeen eighteen. But then most GP practices now uh, kind of insist you have an app to manage your care, and that app is a third party app. 
normally. So then you have to tick the terms and conditions, which is essentially letting them share your data. The thing for me as a researcher, I guess, is that it's data is a commodity. And I think that various organisations have actually locked onto this. So I, I, about two years ago, I requested a very big data set that we've used for many years and, and found that the, the cost recovery model, the price to access it had gone up considerably. And it means researchers now that are doing healthcare research are operate having to operate in a more commercial space. And that's going to mean research is more expensive to do. And that may present some issues, I think, with the advantages Sean's quite rightly outlined about, you know, how we can improve population health. But if that data isn't then accessible to researchers or it's available to commercial concerns above researchers, then there are probably going to be some issues about the equity of that data and accessing it. So that's the end of the podcast. Many thanks to our guest, Sean Linton. Sean, thank you for being with us. My absolute pleasure. It was really fun to discuss these things, actually. it's uh, You've indulged uh, my natural uh, obsession with all of this. Alison, thanks as ever for co-hosting. Thanks, Rachel. And we'll be back in two weeks' time. So remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you've got time, give us a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts. That's the best way to share the word about Nursing Matters. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.